you'll get the people who can muddle through with very little guidance, but even those people would be likely to be more successful and more comfortable and more confident in an environment that is more explicit and more transparent. You need veterinary technicians. Are you doing everything you can to support new ones? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today I talk to Alicia Degenhardt. We last met her on this podcast as a veterinary technician and writer thinking about multitasking, but her new gig is teaching vet techs at Madison Area Technical College in Wisconsin. She's asking what students want in their future careers and seeing how they flourish as learners. She acknowledges education and mentorship is always getting better, but she knows how bad sink or swim can hurt as a veterinary onboarding process. So what can you do to better support vet techs and everyone in the clinic by offering multiple ways to learn and not just assuming everybody knows how you want things done? How is Alicia particularly poised to think about vet techs and education? Here we go. I started off in my professional journey as a high school teacher. I taught English literature communication arts at high school, and I did that with my Bachelor of Arts in English Literature. Okay. Then I decided I just couldn't not work with animals. <laughs> I just couldn't stand it for one more moment. So I went back to school to be a veterinary technician. I worked as a certified veterinary technician. I'm still working as a certified veterinary technician, and I have returned to the college program that I graduated from, the AVMA accredited college program for veterinary technicians, and I am now a part-time teacher in that program. That is too cool. Did you know for sure when you knew you wanted to work with animals, did you go exploring or you already knew about veterinary technology and you're like, I already know I want to be a veterinary technician? Well, I knew about being a veterinary technician, and I was pretty sure that's the direction I wanted to go into. My whole family's in human medicine, and so I was pretty interested in medicine anyways, but not very interested in humans. So <laughs> that kind of directed me toward veterinary medicine, and I think I'm not unique in deducing that information and having that get me into the veterinary field. <laughs> just to start from your bio and then just lay it over on the students who've come in the time you've been there, how typical is a second career veterinary technician? Or many people, they started working in high school in a veterinary practice. And they always knew they wanted to be a vet tech, so they didn't have that first career. So does it feel like there's a 50-50 mix or it leans heavily one way or the other? That's a great question, and I'm only familiar with the student population in our area, right. and it seems to me like there is a mix. It's not 50-50. There's certainly a number of people that have been helping out in their local vet clinics or maybe doggy daycare, boarding facilities, all through high school and went directly into this career. And there are some people that, like me, were returning, you know, to get an education in this and to pursue a veterinary career. Maybe slightly fewer of those students, quite a few students that are right out of high school, or they've worked for a few years. And then there's a number of students that have already have a bachelor's. Some of the students are in our veterinary technician program, 
but they are also pursuing a four-year veterinary technology degree. We have partnerships set up where there can be overlap in courses, and so coursework can kind of exchange between programs and help them pursue that four-year degree. Because what we offer is an associate's degree in applied science, which is a two-year. Well, you can do it in longer if you'd like to, but it's an associate's degree. Do those different populations, so that the youngest students who are coming straight out of high school and the ones who have been out in the workforce for a while, do when you're teaching them or you're working with them, do they feel wildly different? Oh, nope. They all fall into the bucket of, you know, future veterinary technicians. They feel all the same. Interestingly, I don't always know who is who, Okay. you know, what they're coming from. And I do ask, I ask students for their background, but when, when we're engaging and doing the daily coursework, it's not at the forefront of my mind. So I guess if I'm thinking about it, it's really more, there's more variation from individual to individual than there is in any categorization of the students. And so much of that depends on factors outside of the classroom, um, not just what they have done before, but you know what they go home to every day and how much of their time is taken up doing that, as opposed to how much time they have to devote to coursework. Okay, so once upon a time, you went to that school to become a veterinary technician, and you, I were, did. you were thinking about yourself, about what you needed to learn, what the practice you wanted to go to would look like, the kind of veterinary technician you wanted to be, and the kind of stuff you wanted to do. How has your perspective changed, and what have you learned by hearing now expanding out from yourself into, now I have to think about what all these people want in their future practice, and I have to think about all their interests and all the reasons they come how has it changed your perspective on what a veterinary technician is or what people get out of it? Man, oh, well, when I went into school to be a veterinary technician, I had no idea what I was getting into. Okay, good. So you were just a blank slate. Okay. <laughs> yes. I had worked in a boarding facility, but I had never worked in a veterinary clinic. I had never been in a veterinary clinic other than as, you know, that kind of weirdly excited pet owner who brings their pet in and they're like happy to be there. That was me. Okay. Because I was like, I'm going to learn some interesting things at this visit. And obviously I didn't want my pet to be sick, but they were almost all well visits and well visits are nice. So yeah, I really was coming in without much of a clue of what I was getting into. And I was also coming in with no science background. Um, I had a, a bachelor of arts in English literature and I had been doing, you know, a um, liberal arts degree. And so I didn't know how to learn the type of material that I was forced to learn. And it was really the first time in my life that I had really actively pursued learning something that didn't come naturally to me. Does that match up with, again, the current student population? Do a lot of them already know they need some math and already know they need science and this is going to be a big part of what they're going to do? Or do you also get people like you who are like, they're passionate for the animals and the science is like this thing that comes along with it? I get both. Okay. I definitely get both. But I think I'm grateful for my experience because I had to learn how to learn this information and I feel like hopefully that gives me some experience in guiding students through that process. And it also helps me recognize that that in and of itself is a skill. It's not just, oh, you need to memorize 
the life stages of a certain parasite or you need to know which medications you use to treat this disease. It's you need to know how to know those things and how do you obtain, retain, and apply that information, all of which was something that I had to really actively pursue when I was getting my veterinary technician degree because it was really the first time that I had to get information that didn't feel very available to me. So can I ask, maybe we could start with you and then work our way to you as an educator. Thinking about that, I think pedagogy, teaching stuff, and then learning stuff, that kind of meta level of not just the material, but how to absorb the material. So taking it one level higher, I feel like that is either considered super easy and rudimentary or extremely sort of philosophical and complicated. And I think people regard it both like, how come you can't learn this? This is easy. Or, ooh, that's a really big question. How do we teach this <laughs> stuff? And I feel like it kind of gets caught on those things and not in the middle. So when you went in to learn, what are some of the things that you kind of either had to ask people about? How do I absorb this stuff? Or did you just learn it through trial and error? I figured out my tricks like everybody else does. There was a little bit of both, but I had the advantage of coming from an education background. So I had an education degree right. and a bunch of friends who were educators. And I said, hey, I'm really struggling to learn this. How are some ways I can approach this information differently? And some of that was reflecting on things that I knew to use as strategies, you know, and I had guided students through them before, but I hadn't guided myself through them before. Right. So that was... I thought, honestly, a really neat experience and kind of putting me in their shoes was, for me, really interesting. If I really hit a roadblock, I had friends that were educators that I could say, hey, I'm really stuck on this. And you teach using, for example, you know, a lot of flashcards. What's the best way to use that? I used apps, which are far more available now than they were when I was going to school. I graduated from the veterinary technician program in 2014. And while there were a lot of resources available online, even that kind of were study games and study tools, there's infinitely more now. And honestly, I ask the students pretty regularly, what are you using? What do you like? Because I figure they have their finger on the pulse of a lot of that stuff. And then I can share it with other students or we can share it as a group. But yeah, that was kind of my strategy. And now I think that it's more important than it ever was before. And I'm not alone in thinking this or original in thinking this, that students do learn how they learn and to take some control and have some advocacy in how they learn. Because not only in the case of adult learners who, now that I'm working with adult learners instead of high schoolers, there's more independence in learning. But also as we have an increasingly hybrid or potentially even entirely online learning environment, students are increasingly responsible for their learning. And it's not that teachers or instructors aren't actively helping them. None of that has changed just because people aren't always physically in the classroom, but it's a different way to learn, and it's a different set of skills. And there's crossover, but there are some things that people need to learn about themselves and the way they learn that can make it a much smoother process and potentially a more successful process. 
Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. Do you have a feel, given the fact that sort of hybrid curriculum was a necessity with COVID, and so a lot of times it's carried through, they're like, well, it worked for certain things, and so we're going to keep it, we're going to hang on to this, and then they're going to go, the typical veterinary technician is going to go into a brick and mortar practice, be doing little to no telemedicine stuff, maybe answering texts and taking calls occasionally, but almost everything's going to be happening in the clinic, in person, sometimes stressful, hot fire. The hybrid thing where people, if that worked for them and they liked a little in person and they liked a little doing things on their own, and then they're thrust into this job where they're they're in front and with people all the time and they have to learn with people all the time. Do you think it's an easy transition or have you heard if it's an easy transition or it's difficult? I haven't gotten a lot of feedback on it yet. So this is, I'm in my first year here of being (laughs) back in teaching and of the students that I'm working with right now have all been in some kind of hybrid learning environment. I haven't been an instructor in the completely 100% face-to-face program and whether or not there will ever be a completely 100% face-to-face program again is, it's still being discussed and getting student feedback on that as well. But as far as the transition is concerned, I guess our program has maintained labs and in-person hands-on things quite a bit. So I'm not sure that that's a major hindrance as far as, I think the transition into a clinic from a learning environment is very challenging either way, because we can't replicate what you're describing, kind of the pace of it and the complications in a clinic environment in an educational setting. And I actually would argue I would rather replicate some of the things we're doing in an educational setting in a clinic than bring more clinic things into my educational setting. Okay, because I was (laughs) going to ask, I think there's this, I would say it's now decades old, but I think some people still cling to it. The practice can be a, a heavy duty pressure cooker and people learn who they are, and they find out how they operate under stress. And so the idea was, and I think they did this in human medicine too, well, we're just going to take this pressure cooker you're going to have in your job, and we're just going to push you in the education artificially. We're going to make this hard on you. We're going to work long hours. We're going to create these really stressful environments. You know what it's going to be like when you get stuck in the pressure cooker over there, but I'm with you. Could you maybe take the pressure a little bit off the work situation instead of like, we're going to replicate all the stress in the educational environment? Yeah, I'm not going to do that. 
I'm not, I'm not doing that to them. It's so counterproductive. I don't want them to go into the field and accept that as normal. And anyone who's paying attention to the mental health situation in the veterinary field should be saying the last thing we want to do is stress them out earlier and then put them in the clinic environment and sink or swim people. It's not working and it's not going to work. And I'm certainly not going to engage in teaching practices that are really well established to be detrimental just to, I don't know, toughen them up. That's I'm not doing that. <laughs> okay, then here is my question. As you now spend this year, so you're experimenting, you're absorbing this hybrid environment that you didn't use, you had all face-to-face, you're like, I'm doing hybrid as a teacher now. What are the things you've learned in this year or you've been told in this year work or the things the students responded well that you think, I really hope this gets replicated after they graduate and they go somewhere? What are some of the things that work for teaching to get the stuff to stick in their head and to get them to learn and be better without pressure, again, the pressure cook? Man, I understand that a clinic is not primarily a learning environment. And I know that when you're in a clinic setting, people need to come in with certain skills and adaptations and things. So I know there's a difference, but to some degree, everybody stepping into a clinic, even if they're experienced, let's say it's me with eight years of clinic experience going into a new clinic, there's a learning curve. And it's still, it does serve as a learning environment. And as we have a lot of new technicians entering the field, people are still really eager to become technicians. There's kind of a well-known shortage in the field. It's not for lack of people becoming technicians. So really to support those people and to try to create a longevity in their career, yeah, I'd really recommend there are some things in education that transfer, I think, really well to a clinic environment. And there are things that, I don't want to say they're simple because And nothing is simple in a clinic, right? There's a lot of mitigating factors and things happening at one time, but there are things that I think are very achievable. Okay. If you have 29, I promise I won't make you go through all 29, but yeah. Yeah, no, no, I don't. (laughs) I tried to keep it pretty pared down, but there's a couple things that in my continuing education, which is one of the things that, you know, as an instructor, I'm updating my education as far as best practices in teaching and how to reach learners of every type, like uh, multimodal learning and making sure that everyone in the classroom is as successful as that I give them an environment to be successful in, right? And consistently, I'm running into two of the best things that you can do in a learning environment. And I would say really in any environment are to be explicit and to be transparent in goals and expectations. So here's what I mean by that. So to be explicit, I think that when someone's coming into a clinic, there's sometimes an overall feeling of, well, you know what we do in a clinic. You know what's expected of you. You don't. Every clinic is a little bit different. And what harm could it possibly do you to lay it out very clearly? Here are the expectations. 
here's what we would like you to do, here's where we would like you to be, and potentially a timeline on that. You know, we're kind of, if we're doing training, we'd really like to see you comfortable doing this skill set by the time you've put in this many hours or something like that. Understanding that there needs to be flexibility in that because everyone learns at a different pace. But being as explicit as possible and then being transparent about that, here's why. Not because I said so or because that's how we do it here, but, you know, this is the way we do things and here's why. We've tried a few other things and this is what works best. Or we've had meaningful discussions with the staff, with clients, and this is what people want. Or the current research suggests this is best practices in veterinary medicine. But those two things make an environment, a learning environment or a working environment, just a lot. It's greater success for more people because you'll get the people who can muddle through right. <laughs> with very little guidance. But even those people would be likely to be more successful and more comfortable and more confident in an environment that is more explicit and more transparent. Yeah, let's set the state. We talked earlier, and I think we both agreed, clearly there's a problem. Everybody says there's a staffing problem. So this is either there aren't enough technicians coming out of school, which is a possibility. There's too much demand than there are technicians. Or as we also suspected, and I, I mean, I've thought about this for years, and I think you've seen it. People leave the profession very quickly. So they go to all this trouble. They spend time, money, blood, sweat, and tears to become a veterinary technician. And then within a few years, they completely bail on medicine completely. Or I have lots of people go off to become RNs and LVNs and medical assistants in the human medical world because to them, it's more money and less stressful than this job as veterinary technician. If we could just accept that from the get-go... If people see that the muddling through, you know some percentage are going to muddle through. But if you're understaffed, you cannot let the people who will not muddle through go. Like you've hired them, you want them to do well, and then you don't teach them. You're not giving them the explicit instructions that they need, and you're not being transparent about why we're doing this. And if that's losing you people, you can't stand there and keep doing that. Well, you can't and you shouldn't. Because these are people that are entering this field generally because they, and this is something I've really noticed with the students, and they're so excited. They're so excited to be veterinary technicians. They are so excited to help animals, to make a difference. A really shocking number of them are absolutely aware of the financial limitations, and they want to do it anyway. And what a great population to draw from, but support them in their success so that when they come into your environment, the pressure cooker is a good description or, you know, the good old, I'll call it the 90s swimming lesson <laughs> because I was raised in the 90s and they just put you in the pool. It's not good for the vast majority of people. So as you said, that you explained it in like under three minutes. So explicit and transparent. So the fact is, if we go walking, there are lots of right around you and me right now, if we go on a five mile radius and we were able to vet the way people are onboarded and the way they're educated, especially new people, the profession there, you'd probably be like, I see some lack of explicit instructions and I see some lack in transparency. 
People just assume everybody knows things and, or they think it's, you should be smart enough to pick up this stuff. As we said, implicitly, I shouldn't have to explain to you why it's important. You should already know. You should already know this beyond that, where I just assume, are there other barriers you think to making things slowing down a little bit and making things, taking the time to be explicit and then following through on them and explaining the reasons for everything? Is it just time? What do you think the barriers are? Time is definitely a barrier, but I think the other thing is people don't know to do that. So it's not, you know, you don't have an educator on staff, right? Someone who's gone through <laughs> through this training. And most clinics, uh, I think this is changing a little bit. I'm talking to some students. I really like to get feedback from students on what they're experiencing in a clinic. And some students now are in clinics that have HR, but most clinics don't. I haven't been to vet school, but I've talked to some vets and they're not learning to do this, to put together a training program, to put together, you know, a support system for their staff and to troubleshoot staff that are struggling to learn. It's just a lack of skills, not only to create those things, but a lack of awareness that you even should create those things. I don't think it's on their radar of a lot of people. They're focused on getting the medicine done. Yes. So given the fact that most veterinary practices that are independently owned, maybe if there's a larger practice and it's corporate owned, there are people who think about training, who do think about training and set up a program and it's sort of laid out on all the practices. But even in some corporations, I you again, people come on, there are, the corporation has set training programs, but I don't know if you've heard or experienced this where there is a set training program and uh, we don't use it that much. I mean, we know how to do this stuff. We don't have to run people through this complicated, laborious onboarding. Like we just run through this stuff. You know what you're doing. So even if it's there and somebody's calibrated it, it doesn't really have buy-in. Have you experienced that too, where mm-hmm. somebody have, says there's yeah. a system, but people don't use the system? Oh, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> and I, I've experienced also the, we know we should be training you, but we're just not going to. Oh, that's great. (laughs) And I've been on the receiving end of that. And I will completely admit on busy days when I do not have the bandwidth to be both a veterinary technician and an educator, I have been guilty of that, of saying, look, I can't teach you how to do this right now. I feel like that's within my rights because I'm being asked to do two jobs. You should have somebody on staff who is training and that's their job for that day. But yeah, I've definitely experienced we have the system and no one's using it. I think that time management factors into that and familiarity with the system and buy-in to the system. Has whoever developed the training system been transparent with the staff about why it's important and why you should front load your investment time with employees, you know, and take your time and do all that work so that you aren't retraining employees as often the goal and so that the people that you work with are more successful and more comfortable and more confident. If somebody is hearing this and thinking, oof, some level, either training for new associates in the culture and the way things are done there or new veterinary technicians, veterinary assistants, receptionists, kennel attendants were like, I think there's some gaps here. I want to ask you from your perspective, maybe it has to be both ways. Should this be a top-down thing where somebody at the top needs to press and say, we need this and we're going to create the training from the top down? 
Or do you think, have you seen success in a frustrated member of the team being like, I need this. So they build their own thing. These technicians are coming in. We're not training them properly. I'm a technician. I want to make this happen or receptionist or veterinary assistant or an associate. So top down, bottom up, both. I am not an expert in how, you know, kind of businesses work and things like this are implemented. But just speaking anecdotally, I think it's a big ask to ask an employee to be the squeaky wheel. And there is a huge portion of the population that is not going to advocate for themselves. And that's something that I really am trying to, that's important to me as an educator with the students as well, is to try to encourage self-advocacy and everything. But the flip side of that is I don't really want them to put themselves in a situation where they receive backlash for that. So I think top-down and coworkers need to be educated in how to recognize self-advocacy, how to listen to it, how to implement things, you know, that somebody is asking for. Because right now, I think it would be really challenging for someone to bring those concerns in and for those concerns to be prioritized. I think that would lead more to the situation you're describing where someone makes a system and no one uses it. (laughs) And it really should be consistent. Want to squeeze Alicia's brain for more? Email her at, I'm not going to try to say it, l-u-n-a dot a-o-i-f-e at gmail.com. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. Did you love it? Leave us a review, tell your friends at VetMed about us, and if you want more, you're in luck. Even more ideas for leaders trying to craft better education for vet techs in the extended version exclusively for our leaders community. Learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.